If you've got a Bible, if you've got an app on your phone or your tablet, whatever you've got, open up to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7. We are uh, in a long series through the life and ministry of Jesus. We're studying it chronologically through all four Gospels at the same time. We started last January, and here we are at the end of December. We're still going. This is week 41 in that series, which is hard to believe. And uh, we're going to finish up the Sermon on the Mount this year uh, in December. And then the plan is in January, we're actually going to start a new series for a while, and then we'll come back uh, to our series through the Gospels a little bit later in 2015 Um, Lucas is bringing me some water. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And uh, the plan, though, after the new year is we're going to teach on uh, spiritual gifts. And uh, we had a spiritual gifts weekend in November. Hopefully kind of whet your appetite a little bit. And the plan is going forward, we're going to teach a little more in depth into that. And we're going to provide some opportunities for you to be connected to serve in the church and figure out, do you realize that you are specifically shaped by God in a unique way that no one else is because of your spiritual gifts, your passions, your abilities, your personality, your experiences, all of those things weigh into who you are. And God would desire to use each of those things in you to serve and love others and to build his kingdom here at Wawasee. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to start that on uh, January 11th and uh, should be an exciting spring. And I want you to be thinking uh, maybe what, what are some of my own spiritual gifts? What are the things I'm passionate about? What am I excited about? How, if, if I could serve in ministry and serve and love other people somehow, what would it be? What is God calling you to? And uh, we're going to dive into that together right after the new year. But this morning we are in uh, Matthew chapter 7, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6 together as we get started. Uh, Matthew writes this. He's recording Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes on and he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? (laughs) You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, this passage, especially verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, is one of the most often quoted verses in all the Bible. It's one of the most beloved verses in all the Bible. In fact, Pastor Greg Laurie calls this the, the unbeliever's favorite verse. It, it is. It's kind of everybody's favorite verse, isn't it? It's one of those that's woven into kind of the tolerance culture we live in. It is, isn't it? I mean, how, how, many, how often do you hear... Oh, no, don't, don't judge. Don't judge because you don't want to be judged, right? I mean, and then people will start talking or being critical about something. Oh, no, I'm not judging. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just, I'm just saying. Right? You ever hear that one? Why do you think people love this verse so much? I think it's skewed, though, because when, when, when people quote it in our culture and they say don't judge, what they're really saying, you know what they're really saying and why they really love it? They're saying don't judge me. Don't judge me. You have no right to judge me. You have no right to tell me what to do. Don't judge me. 
Well, like most of us, a pastor by the name of John Burke, he's a pastor in Austin, Texas, assumed that he was not a judgmental person. Are you a judgmental person? Do you judge others? Do you judge other people? No, not you wouldn't do that, would you? Not you. Not you. Well, well Pastor John thought the same thing, and so he, he tried an experiment. For a week, he kept a journal of all the things he found himself being judgmental about, all the things he found himself being overcritical about. And here's what he writes uh, in his book, Mud and the Masterpiece. He writes, you know what? Judging others is fun. See if you agree with any of this. Judging others makes you feel good. And I'm really not sure if I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room, judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm being moody. But I've got a good reason. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his bad breath. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No. He goes on, he says, but there, but, but there's correction that values with mercy and there's correction that devalues with judgment. He writes, I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such idiotic things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and drive and find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on the on the Department of Public Safety for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible for me to find what I'm looking for, all while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long. Because look, people, it says 10 items or less. And one count more than three, and I count one more in three of your baskets. What is wrong with you people? And why can't the teenage checker, by the way, what is she wearing? Why can't the teenage checker focus and work so we can get out of here? He writes, judging is our favorite pastime, if we're honest, but we're not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards we would highly resent being held to ourselves. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. Do you agree with that? Judging is often... If we're honest, kind of our favorite pastime. And it's so easy to judge people. I've I've talked about this before where there's, you know, if if you see somebody maybe who who has aspired or who has grown or or whatever, in a better light than you, there's one or there's two ways that I can make myself feel better about that. I can either tear them down so that I feel better and, and thus bring myself up, or I can just kind of get my own stuff together and... And get my life in order and and be like them as well, right? Well, judging is when we tear people down, even if it's only in our own mind. Even if it's only in our own mind and our own spirit. And the Bible's clear that that's incredibly damaging for us. And Jesus tells us, judge not. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. Uh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, he speaks with... um, with clarity about the way we ought to live our life, but he also speaks with grace um, and that he speaks with compassion and uh, that he even uses humor, as we'll see this morning, to to illustrate uh, our own shortcomings. And he does it because he loves us. So, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd work through me and speak to me and, and, and teach me even as I teach and preach this morning. 
I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. I pray that uh, rather than taking your word and accusing us and, and twisting it and laying a heavy burden on us, that uh, you'd change us. And Holy Spirit, you'd be free to move in a way that, that we would leave um, it with the spirit of love. Um, Father, teach us now. We pray all this through your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, what does Jesus mean by judge not? What does he mean by judge not? That's really the key question we have to answer before we go on and and get into anything else is, what does he mean by that? Obviously, uh, there's a certain amount of judgment that you have to use in your life, right? There's a certain amount of discernment that that Jesus actually himself will see uh, instructs us to use in the way we live our life and the way we go about life. So clearly he can't just mean never never judge and just be wishy-washy about everything. He can't mean that, obviously, right? So what does he mean by judge not? Well, he's not saying we should never make judgments. The word there for judge is the Greek word. It's called krino. Have a fun word to say, krino. And uh, krino can mean one of two things. It can either mean to uh, analyze or evaluate, or it can mean to condemn and avenge. And this idea of judging then can either, when we see judge throughout Scripture, when this word is used, it can either mean and to make a judgment, I'm to analyze or evaluate the situation, or it can mean um, there's condemnation and avengement happening in this judgment or this judging. Well, I would, I would uh, submit to you that analyzing and evaluating is our role as believers, that, that we are to judge in the sense of, of evaluating and analyzing situations and making wise choices. We'll get to that later this morning, but what I think Jesus is saying here when he says judge not is he's inferring that second meaning of uh, don't judge and condemn others. Don't judge in a way that you are judgmental. Don't, in other words, I wrote it like this. Don't be judgmental or overcritical. Don't be judgmental or overcritical. I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says, judge not. Don't be judgmental or overcritical of others. Now, I'm sure none of you have any idea what that means, right? You've, you've probably never done that, have you? So I, we, we probably can just skip this whole passage, right? Well, well. The guy on the stage can't skip it because I can be like that. I can be judgmental and overcritical of other people. And, and, you know, I started thinking through what are some examples of the way Christians are overcritical? Because who's Jesus teaching when he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount? He had sat down with his disciples. He's teaching his followers. And what's he teaching them about? He's teaching them how to live as people in his kingdom, how to live as kingdom people. He focuses on the kingdom over and over in, in Matthew 5 through 7. And, and so he's, he's talking about what it looks like to live as, as a child of God in his kingdom. And one of the things Jesus is saying is don't be judgmental and overcritical if you're going to be a part of my kingdom. And there's ways that Christians, we're, we're, we're some of the worst at this. Here's some examples I, I just thought of kind of off the cuff this week is um, one I see a lot as a pastor is people talking ill of uh, famous pastors or ministries that we know nothing about. Do you ever see that? 
and they condemn some pastor who's who's maybe well-known because he's written some books or he's on TV or whatever else. And, and people are so quick to just condemn and criticize anything that comes out of that guy's mouth. Even if 99% of it is flat-out gospel that you would affirm and study and love for yourself. I just don't like his attitude. I don't like his smile. I don't like, what is it? What is it? Why are you so critical of them? This happens so much in our celebrity culture. A pastor's name comes up, and we immediately dismiss anything from them. Another example of this would be uh, bloggers with what I call the gift of discernment, discernment bloggers. If, listen, if you get on, let me just give you a tip. If you get on religious blogs online and you like to read and study those things, one, that's a good thing. I'm glad that you're studying. I'm glad you're reading. But when you come across a blog that, that proclaims itself to be a discernment blog, speaking of other pastors and ministries, or a watch blog, speaking of other pastors. Those two words right there are key right away. You know what? It's time to click to a new page. Because the reality is most of what comes through there is said without a spirit of love. It's all condemnation. It stretches the truth. It stretches facts. And it tears men and women down who who have faults just like every one of us. And, And sometimes people get... They've got the right answer, but, boy, I don't know. And the reality is that when, when I read it, because, yeah, I might go, yeah, but some of those things might be true, but they also stretch the truth, and by reading them, you're becoming like them. In fact, Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's a fancy way of saying you become like the people you hang out with. You become like the people you read online. You want to guard your attitude against a judgmental spirit? Be careful what you're reading. The other thing we can be judgmental of is other churches. I mean, mega churches get a bad rap sometimes in a small rural culture, don't they? And sometimes just other churches in our community get a bad rap because some, sometimes maybe somebody leaves that church for whatever reason, some wrong happened to them, and we don't know the details. We don't know if it was their fault or somebody else's fault, but as soon as we hear from them, whose fault was it? Well, it wasn't theirs. It was somebody else's. And and now suddenly we start to interpret that as, oh, yeah, and we take up second offense with people, and and we become judgmental of a church or of pastors or of people that we know nothing about. Nothing about. But we do that so often. Imagine if that happened in your family. I mean, if you you have a healthy family relationship and and one of the members of your family are wrong, usually you're going to go and talk and try to work things out. But if you're unhealthy, you're just going to kind of walk out and leave and and go on, aren't you? The other one is judging people's motives. You ever judge people's motives? Yeah, they just don't like me. They're out to get me. They're just doing it because they want their name to be made something of. They're just doing it because that's, that's what they want. We become, we don't have any idea what other people's motives are. You can't judge someone else's motives. Now we're going to see later, you can judge their fruit. You can judge their fruit and what comes about from their life. But, but as far as their motivation, nine times out of ten, you have no clue what's motivating them. And usually, sometimes when we're being judgmental of another person's motives, we're actually projecting our motives onto them. Because if it was me in that spot, that's probably why I'd be doing it. Parenting decisions is another topic of criticism in the church. 
You ever heard this one bandied about? Oh, I would never do that with my kid. I would never let them watch that. I would never let them eat that food. I would never send them to that school. I would never homeschool them. I would never. You ever have that conversation? You ever think those things? Forget conversation. What about your heart? God sees your heart. Do you ever think those things? Sometimes this comes out, by the way, just to give you a word of wisdom here. Um, when we promote different things or ideas that, that we're passionate about on Facebook, you ever see that? And you see somebody promoting some big thing about maybe the way they parent their kids, and then you just feel like, I am the worst parent ever because I don't do that. I never do that. I blow it over and over and over. Be encouraging with your words, not judgmental or critical, and, and be wise in what you say or post so that you wouldn't cause that condemnation for someone else. If you want to read more about that, read Romans 14. Another one, here's a couple more dress or style or appearance. Ooh, I wouldn't be caught dead wearing that. Have you seen the way they dress? It's awful. Awful. The 80s called, they'd like their clothes back. Right? I mean... And we judge the way other people dress. Alcohol use is another one that we're judgmental about. Unforgiveness and pride. Oftentimes a critical attitude towards someone reveals a proud and unforgiving spirit in me. Doesn't it? Isn't that true? When I'm critical judgmental of someone else, usually it reveals that, that I've got some pride to deal with. Because I think of myself too highly. Or I'm, I'm tearing them down so that I could lift myself up and feel better about myself. Well, Jesus says, don't be judgmental, overcritical of others. That's what he means when he says, judge not. So the question is, why? Well, why not? It's fun. I like being judgmental. I like it. It's what we talk about at small groups. That's all we laugh about. Well, here's why. Number one, here's four reasons. Number one, because you'll be judged. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Every one of us, loved ones, every one of us one day will be judged. Whether that's being judged. Have you ever noticed this? That people who are overcritical or who are uh, judgmental, usually, or when you find yourself being that way, usually what happens, you tend to face the same judgment, the same critical spirit from other people, don't you? And they start to just stand off and like, ooh, enough with that. And you face judgment from other people, but ultimately we're going to face judgment from God. In fact, Romans 2, 1 through 3 talks about this. Paul, in, in numerous places in Romans, but here's one example. He says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You condemn yourself because you're judging people for something that you do. I would never eat three helpings of ice cream after dinner. I'm watching my weight because I eat four, <laughs> right? I mean, you judge, you condemn yourself because you judge them for the same things you do. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He says it's right that God's judgment would fall on us when we judge. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, do, that you will escape the judgment of God? Is that what you think? Do you think that you're just not going to be judged some way or somehow? 
The reality is that, that we'll be judged. One commentator, a man by the name of Leon Morris, says to be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. Think about that the next time those judgmental thoughts creep through your mind or flash before you. When I'm being judgmental, when I'm being critical, I'm inviting God to be critical and judgmental of me. And he's always right in his judgment. Number two, you'll be judged in the way that you judge others. You'll be judged in the same way that you judge other people. You'll be judged in the same way. Some rabbis taught that God had two measures. He had two measures. In other words, two like two measuring cups with which he doled things out. In one hand, he had the measure of mercy. And in the other hand, he had the measure of judgment. Now, now this would have been something that would have been taught even in Jesus' day. So some believe that when Jesus is saying that the measure with which you use to judge others, it'll, the same measure will be used to you, that, that he may have been uh, playing on this understanding among the Jewish people that that God will either deal with you with mercy or he'll deal with you with judgment. And so however you deal with others, if you use uh, the measure of mercy with other people, then that will be the measure God uses with you. But if you use the measure, measure of judgment with other people and of criticism and critique, then God in his perfect judgment will use his measure of judgment toward you. You'll be judged in the same way, Jesus says, that you judge others. So, quick poll. Would you rather God deal with you with mercy? Or would you rather God deal with you in judgment? Who's for mercy? Anybody for judgment? You're wise. You're wise. Yeah, we desire God to be merciful to us. Not to give us what we deserve but instead to give us grace, which we don't deserve. Really, this is a negative stating of the golden rule, which comes up uh, in the next passage in Matthew 7, verse 12, where Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So why not be judgmental? One, you'll be judged. Two, you'll be judged in the same way that you judge. Three, Here's a clue phone one for you, right? Pick up the clue phone. You're not God. You are not God. How many of you have said that to somebody when you're being judgmental? Who died and made them God? You ever thought that? Who made them king? Who put them in charge? Well, nobody did. The reality is you're not God either. You're not God. And the one who decides to judge what another person does, we, we put ourselves in the place of God when we do that. We say, you know what, my opinion of what's going on here, my opinion of their life, my opinion of their motives, my opinion of fill in the blank is higher than God's opinion. And so God, I don't know what yours, so I'm just going to take over here, okay? So I'm going to judge them. And really when we're judgmental and we're critical, we're taking the place of God. Loved ones, you are in Christ, right? When God sees you, he, he sees you as, as if you've trusted Jesus Christ, repented of your sin, become a Christian. He sees you as veiled in Christ. He no longer sees you as a sinner. He no longer sees your sin. He sees you as pure and white and clean and as a saint, a saint who sins but clean. You're in Christ. You're his brother or his sister. But 
even though you're in Christ, positionally, that doesn't give you the authority of Christ to usurp God as judge. Paul in Romans 14.10 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or are you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. James talks about this as well in James chapter 4. He says, Do not speak evil against one another. Jesus' little brother James, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You're not God. James says there's only one, and he's the judge and lawgiver. So we shouldn't judge because we'll be judged, because we'll be judged in the same way that we judge, because we're not God. And ultimately, because number four, an an overcritical spirit is the opposite of love. And Jesus says that his disciples will be known by what? Their what for each other? Their love for each other. Yet you know what the church is often known for? Not for love for one another, but for, for criticism of one another. For criticism of our culture. For criticism and backfighting within the church or between churches. And what a horrible testimony to the world that is. Some of you have seen it. Some of you have been uh, part of churches. We've, we've had our own conflicts as well. If you've been here long enough, any church, you're there long enough, it happens, right? We're all sinners. We're all messed up. But, but you've seen people be tore down through, through judgment and criticism and when really they ought to be encouragers and lovers of one another. Well, do you know the, the kind of the penultimate passage about love in the Bible? Do you know where it is? You've heard it at, at 90% of the weddings you've ever been to. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to be speaking or teaching on spiritual gifts after the new year. Well, curiously, this love that Paul talks about is framed in the reference as he's talking about God giving gifts to people. And so the love he speaks of here is actually a gift from God that he gives us to use to love one another. But let's just look at it, and specifically First uh, Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. An overcritical spirit is the opposite of love, so let's look at some of the opposites of this verse. He, Paul says in verse 4, he says, Love is patient and kind. See, the, the, the people in Corinth at that church had, had all kinds of issues going on, and, and they were fighting over who had the greater gift, who had the greater spiritual gift. This is just one of the many things happening there. And Paul's like, why are you fighting about that? That's, why, why are you being critical of one another in that? You need to put on what's greater and, achieve, and aspire for a greater gift, the gift of love. And he says, love is patient and kind. But a critical spirit, I wrote this, is quick to condemn and malicious. Love does not envy or boast, Paul writes. I wrote, when I'm critical, it's often betraying my jealousy and envy of another person. Love doesn't envy, but when I'm critical, usually it betrays the fact that I'm envious of something. Tearing them down to boast and lift myself up. Love is not arrogant or rude. When I'm operating from a critical spirit, I'm often incredibly arrogant, if I'm honest. 
because I wouldn't criticize them if I wasn't so clearly right. Right? And I correctly, and I correct them quickly and harshly. Some say it's rude. I say it's being honest. But it's not love. It's not love, is it? If I do it in that way. Love does not insist on its own way. You know, when, when I speak for, I can only speak for me, and I'm an expert on the subject because I can be overcritical and judgmental. When, when I find myself in that way, my spirit is critical precisely because I'm insisting on my own way. Precisely because I am. Love is not irritable or resentful. Well, critics are very irritated with their subjects or they'd never say anything. And they resent the fact that no one else does. Love does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Critics love it when someone screws up and gets it wrong. And they're willing to take any half-truth and stretch it, twist it, revel in it to get their point across. But love does not rejoice with wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. In fact, Paul concludes, he says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Remember a number of years ago, we taught through, uh, and this will be in your 110 homework this week, but numbers, and uh, specifically in numbers, I think, 11 and 12. And, and we looked at some of the wilderness attitudes that God's people had after they left Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness and the attitudes that God judged in them and condemned them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And one of those was an attitude of criticism. Well, do you remember what we were to replace an attitude of criticism with? An attitude of love. Paul talks often about putting off the old self and putting on the new. Putting off my criticism and my judgment and putting on love. Love for God and love for others. Listen, if you you struggle with this, as I do, with, with being judgmental or critical, even if it's just in your mind, maybe it never makes it to your lips. But you know what you need to do? You need to pray that God would give you a spirit of of love for other people. That he would help you love them. Because as you begin to love, and these things begin to be characteristic of your life, there's no room for the judgmental, overcritical spirit. It's replacing that with a right virtue. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 3. He says, after saying, judge not, that you be not judged. He says, he gives an example. And here's, I, I'm guessing when Jesus teaches this, I don't think he's teaching it like, you know, just big, mean, old preacher man pounding the pulpit. I, he's on the side of a hill. I think he's, he uses, he uses humor here. And I think he, he probably has a twinkle in his eye as he says this. And people probably kind of snicker at it when they hear him say it. He goes, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But you don't notice the log that's in your own eye. I mean, that's so ridiculous, isn't it? That you could have a log in your eye. I mean, that's not even possible. Or a plank, your translation might say. He's using hyperbole. He goes, or how can you say to your brother, oh, let me take that speck out of your eye. When you yourself... There's a log in your own eye. How can you help them? 
You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. These three verses remind me of a blues song Eric Clapton sings. And uh, when I was in high school, I I think it's because when I became a Christian in the early 90s, I was in high school, and I had this unplugged CD, and the second song on the CD was, Before You Accuse Me, and then the next line, let me know it, Take a Look at Yourself. Before you accuse me, take a look at yourself. And I think about that. But before you help me with my spec, dude, you got a log in your eye. Why don't you, get, why don't you take care of that, and then you can come help me. But, but that's totally the wrong attitude again now, isn't it? I'm becoming judgmental. And really, it ought to be, before I accuse you, i got to take a look at myself. I need to take a look at myself in the mirror and remove the log out of my own eye so that I can help. I think Jesus said this with a smile on his face, though. Before, before you pull the speck out of their eye, pull the log out of your own. I mean, can you see this as like just some kind of SNL skit? Some eye doctor who's got a big log in his eye, and the theme song talks about the guy with the log in his eye. You know, it's just something goofy. I mean, that, that's what I picture. And, this, and by the way, this is an incredibly tough passage then for me to preach on. Because I know there's a log in my eye. In fact, every Sunday morning I feel that. When I get into the, into the pulpit and I get into the text, and the, the reality is that often the, the very topic to teach on that week is something that I need to hear and that I need to learn and that ways that I need to change. Just, just as a man, let alone as a pastor. And so it's dangerous for me to teach on this, and it's hard, but the truth is, I'm a guy with a giant plank in my eye, and, but God's word is sufficient to train us and correct us and rebuke us and make us new. And I believe that even if I'm inadequate, his word is. Amen? And 2 Timothy 3 talks about this. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God breathed out by is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I feel it nearly every week that I preach. And it just pierces to the soul. And and I go, what do you have any right teaching on this about? But that's God's word, right? It, It both pierces to the soul, but it also brings comfort that, you know what? I may not have it all together, but if I look at my life five years ago or 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, God has been working. And there's growth. And I'm not the man I was. And and maybe for you, you're not the woman you were. You're not the man you were. And by God's grace, he's changing you. Well, Jesus says this, before we judge others, we must evaluate ourselves. So evaluate yourself first. Reminds me of a story of a husband who... uh, he thought his wife was going deaf. And so what he does is he goes to the doctor. The doctor's a friend of his, and he goes to the doctor. He says, hey, doc, um, I'm, 
we've been married a long time and I'm, I'm pretty sure my wife is going deaf. In, in fact, I, I talk to her and I'm, I, I'm, I, I say, hey, how are you, honey? And she, she doesn't say a word. She doesn't reply. She doesn't respond. She doesn't move. I get a little closer and do it again. And, and still there's, there's no response from her. What do I do? I'm, I'm pretty sure that she's going deaf. Well, the doctor sat and thought for a little bit. And he said, well, let's do this. Let's just figure out, because it does sound like maybe she's deaf so or going deaf. So why don't you go home and uh, let's try a little experiment. Why don't you start at about 15 feet away from her and say something to her. I don't know when the opportunity presents itself. And if, if she doesn't respond, then, then come about five feet closer and then say something to her and just... Just see how that goes and see where it is the point that she can hear. And then come back and talk and maybe we can come up with a strategy to try to get her to come in and get some help. And he goes, that's a great idea. So the husband goes home, he goes home and he gets home and his wife is cooking dinner. She's got her back to him, her, her face is to the stove and, and she's, she's cutting vegetables and throwing them in the pot on the stove. And he comes in and he goes, hi, honey, what's for dinner? No response. No response. She doesn't even move. He goes, wow. So he, he gets about five feet closer. and, Hi, honey, I'm home. What's for dinner? No response again. He goes, wow, this is a lot worse maybe than I thought. And he gets a little closer and, and tries again. Honey, how are you? I'm home. What's for dinner? No response. So finally, he's, he's really worried. And he's a little bit angry, too, wondering if she's just ignoring him. And, and, and he gets up right next to her and he goes, Hi, honey, I'm home. Hope you had a good day. What's for dinner? And she goes, for the fourth time, vegetable stew. (laughs) He was the one going deaf. He didn't need to evaluate her. He needed to evaluate himself, didn't he? Well, that's so true for all of us, isn't it? Before we go judging others, before we help them with the speck, we need to Pull the log out of our own eye. Luke 18, Jesus talks about this as well. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Sounds like judgmental people. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Examine yourself first. Humble yourself that God would exalt you. The tax collector didn't recognize anybody else's sin but his own first. The Pharisee recognized everyone else's sin and was glad that wasn't his sin. We already read from Romans 14, verse 10, but let me read you the the verses that follow it. Verse 10 says in Romans chapter 14, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue confess to God. 
So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Sometimes your attitude, sometimes my attitude can be a stumbling block or a hindrance to other believers. Paul says, no longer pass judgment on one another. Yet at the same time, verse 5, when Jesus says, before you pull the speck out of their eye, take the log out of your own, he seems to imply that there is a certain amount of judging others that's appropriate. Because why else would you help them pull the speck out of their eye? Why, in other words, why else would you help them with their sin if you hadn't made some kind of a judgment that, yeah, that is sin and they need to grow in that and we need to help them with that? Well, this launches into our final observation for the morning and, and a verse that Jesus utters and it appears to be out of place and it throws the reader for a loop at first glance. It, it, it might you. He says right after all this, then, after the log in your own eye, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Don't give to dogs what is holy. Well, what is holy in the Gospel of Matthew? The thing when Matthew writes that's always holy, always sacred, your translation might say, is the Gospel. It's the kingdom. And I believe that's what Jesus is referring to here when he says, Don't give to dogs what is holy. Don't... Don't, don't throw what's holy before dogs or, or pearls before pigs. Don't, don't throw the gospel out carelessly. Second Peter 2.22, we, we learn uh, that this is a quote of Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, where the, the dog returned to its, returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, the dogs that Jesus is referring to isn't your pet dog, Fido. It's not Scooby-Doo. It's not Snoopy. It's, it's, a, it's a ravenous, wild dog that just scavenges for food. Think more like a wolf than you think of your pet dog. When Jesus says, don't throw this to the dogs. The pigs were also wild and could be incredibly, incredibly mean. Some of you who have pigs, you know this is true even of, of pigs you have on your farm. They, they can be incredibly mean, especially if they're hungry. And Jesus said, don't throw them pearls. They're just going to put it in their mouth, spit it out, and then they're going to trample it and maybe trample you. Well, I said before that to judge has two connotations. One is to condemn or to avenge. We're not to do that. That's God's role. But the other is our role, to evaluate and to uh, critique, to, to make an evaluation and in fact, if you scroll down a little bit or turn over the next page to verse 15 in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, Jesus tells us to judge. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He said, You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, fig, or figs from thistles? So every, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. A couple quick observations on this passage, which is just a few verses down. We're told by Jesus here that we have to make judgment of others. Because he says, beware of false prophets, beware of false teachers. You can't beware of them unless you're judging and critiquing what they're teaching, right? 
Well, what's the standard by which you judge it and critique it? Your opinion? God's word, right? You, you judge it by God's word. Are they being faithful to God's word? Are they teaching God's word? Are, are they promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ? That all of us are sinners and we need to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus in faith. And then the other observation is that we evaluate their fruit. This tells me that the evaluation of others is not a quick thing. And when Jesus is saying judge not, usually when we're judgmental or overcritical, it's a snap decision, isn't it? I'm just quickly overcritical and quickly judgmental of them. But he does say you will know them by their fruit. Well, if I'm judging fruit, what do I have to wait for? I've got to give it some time for the fruit to grow. Fruit doesn't just pop up. It takes a season. And so before I make a judgment about someone or about something, I need to be patient and let the season come where I can really evaluate their fruit and I can love them and care for them in the meantime. And then if their fruit betrays them and it's bad fruit, bad fruit can only come from a bad tree or or some kind of sickness in the tree, well, then I can go... You know, I I see this in your life, and I want to come and help you with this. And in fact, there was a season in my life where I had this same bad fruit. But by God's grace, I was able to overcome this sin and deal with it and and get better. And, And that's when you go to them about the speck in their eye. Not the first time you see it, unless you've got a really good relationship with that person, right? You take time. You take time. Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we close by saying this, that Jesus says judge not, but he never says never judge. He's saying judge using right discernment. Because he realizes that that when he says judge not, that our culture is going to take that and go, yeah, judge not, because I don't want to be judged. Let's just be open-minded. But the problem is, like G.K. GK Chesterton and others have said, you could be so open-minded, your brain will fall out. That's the flip side of it, right? You don't want to be judgmental, but you, you still have to be discerning. You still have to be discerning. But discernment is a slow process, especially with other people. And you're... You, you put James you put James' words into practice that, that you'd be, slow, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so that when you see a brother who's struggling, James writes this in James chapter 5, verse 19, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Judge slowly with right discernment. Amen? Now as we close, um, these are Jesus' words to his church. These are Jesus' words to his people who have repented of their sin, who recognize they're messed up, who need a savior. If you've never made that choice, this is great advice for you, but it's not life-changing. Until you would take the step of turning from your sin, repenting, which that's just a, a fancy word in the Bible that means turn. Turn from my sin. Turn and repent. Turn to what? Well, turn to Jesus. 
that, that he would give you his life. He would take your sin. He would make you new, give you his spirit so that you could actually take hold of his gift of love and live it out in your life and not be as judgmental or as critical. Amen. So if you've never done that, I, I appeal to you today, maybe you would trust Jesus with your life. But with that, let's pray. We'll take our offering. Uh, we'll close in song and call it a morning. Um, Father, thank you for Jesus. And uh, Father, I pray you'd help each of us to be known by our love for one another. And um, that means putting off critical attitudes. That means putting off a judgmental spirit that is quick to make um, assumptions and uh, to judge others in ways that we would never want to be judged ourselves. Instead, let us be slow to judge others. And when we do it, to do it with right discernment, examining ourselves first, and then going to help one another in love, because that's what love does. Um, Father, I pray for those who've never trusted you in shout of my voice. If they would hear your word today, I pray they wouldn't harden their hearts, but would turn to you in saving faith. We thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.